This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. And the only thing I know that helps with trauma is talking about it and telling the stories and bearing witness. Hello, bonjour, shalom, and welcome to Culturally Jewish. I'm David Sklar. And I'm Ilana Zakon. Join us as we explore Jewish art, culture, and identity in Canada. On this week's episode, we chat with writer Ruth Rakoff. Mama always wanted me to be a doctor, but I became an artist and that really shocked her. Now I'm interviewing people in the biz, pros, and newish, but all of them are artists and they're culturally Jewish. Ilana, you were in Toronto not so long ago. Where were you doing there? I just got back last night. I was at the Jewish Futures Salon that I've been aptly promoting on our podcast. I got to meet some listeners. Oh, did you? Okay. It's really fun. Great. Quite a few avid, culturally Jewish and former Bajor High listeners who followed us onto our new, <laughs> our new journey. Nice. Um, it was an incredibly inspiring day. I think one of the things that really affected me was it was one of the few moments in my entire life, other than when I did the Jewish Arts Mentorship Program at the Seagull, where I felt so equally welcome as both Jewish and as an artist in the same room. Okay. And I heard from a lot of people that they were going in with a bit of hesitation of, oh, is this going to be a typical kind of federation style event? Or is this yeah. going to feel like more my speed? And they were, they were all pleasantly surprised at how artistic it felt. Like we started the day, instead of it just being rows and rows of chairs, they were all in a circle in a huge, huge room. There's about a 90 to 100 people. Oh, yeah, it okay. was really, really well attended um, of all different disciplines. And they had us do uh, meditation and like grounding exercise. But <laughs> do you ever do that at a Jewish event? Like It, it sounds like a theater event. Yeah, yeah, it felt like a theater event. And then there was all these different exercises to get to know your neighbor, which I love. I hate. But, but they did it in a way that made it less awkward. Because it was like, turn to the person next to you and ask them, why are you here? And then ask them again, why are you actually here? Why are you here? Why are you here? Until like you find that common ground okay, I'm here because I'm a Jewish artist or I'm here because I'm feeling horrible with everything going on and I yeah. wanted to connect with people or my friend invited me or whatever. And anyway, there was a whole bunch of different exercises and we had like intentions like moving into the day and that was so rare at a Jewish event. That's what we've been talking a lot about lately, basically, is how we don't always feel warm and invited in art spaces, be it online or be it in person, because of everything that's going on with Israel and Hamas. But yeah. now you're sort of saying that this was like the first time in several weeks that you've sort of felt really good, really welcome, really where you could share your honest opinions about everything going on, right? I mean, I, the war did come up a couple of times, but I feel like just being a Jewish artist in general felt really nice. But yes, mm. there was that sense of like, Wow, one of the few theater spaces that I feel really comfortable in right now. So the pa panel that I went to in the morning, as I said, there was a few different options of panels. I was hosted by David Kaufman, who mm. came over to me in the er earlier in the day and said, Hi, Lana, it's so nice to meet you in person. He had a variety of, of panelists, including uh, a singer who incorporates poetry that she discovered from her ancestors who were in the Holocaust and put it to music. Uh, one of the workers from the Holocaust Museum at the JCC Prosserman. And they also had a professor from Concordia University who specializes in like genocide and preservation of memory and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, it was very, very interesting. We had lunch. And then in the afternoon, I hosted my panel. And it was really fun. because I, I didn't even know you were hosting yeah, a panel. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What was it about? Um, so mine was called Jewish Infusions. And it was all about how do you bring your Jewish identity 
into your artwork, even if your artwork is not only meant for Jews. And uh, the panel is really fun because one of our guests was someone we actually had on the show, Shayna, who made yes. Lesson Kosher. Yes. Um, so we had Shayna. We had um, an author who wrote a book I happened to read last year, Rachel Matlow, who wrote the book Dead Mom Walking. Just totally randomly picked it up at a bookstore. Okay. Um, dark comedic memoir about their mom who had cancer um, but didn't want to get treatment. And so she tried to hear like cure herself with herbs and it did not work out um so th the interesting thing is even though it's really dark and we got a lot into this in the conversation rachel talks about how they find judaism incorporates this kind of darkness and this humor the dark humor that allows you to tackle these dark subjects in a way that is light um there's a lot of heaviness in the book too but this sounds really cool. I'm actually very yeah. disappointed. I, I didn't make it to Toronto. People asked me where you were. Um, it, it was awesome. I was death cleaning this week, basically, is what I was doing here in Montreal, is helping my mom clean out basically a lot of the stuff she did not want in the house anymore as we prepare yeah. to sort of like remove as much as possible. But that's what I was doing. Yeah. I think I needed to be here maybe no, next year. 100%. 100%. Hopefully they do it again. But it was, it was a really lovely day. There was a lot of great networking. Got to meet some really awesome Jewish artists across many, many mediums. Um, and I feel really inspired. And and one of the biggest takeaways that I'll say, and I'll end on that, is the keynote speaker, Kendall Pinckney, who I actually met through when I did the JAM mentorship program last year. He's an amazing writer, Jewish, uh, I don't even know. He does so many things. He uh, He's Black. He converted to Judaism. He's a rabbi. He's an artist. Um, he is a part of Reboot, which is like a whole Jewish organization that helps uh, give funding to all sorts of like Oscar winning and Juno winning and all these sorts of stuff projects for for Jewish arts. They're the ones that were behind that Seder that happened in the pandemic with all the famous people. Yeah. So they yes. they were the ones who made that happen. And with just, Jason Alexander. Yeah, exactly. Okay. With 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 all the Jewish famous people. Um. So his his whole spiel, which is what gave the name Jewish Features its name, was all about how what how do we define Jewish Future, which is a really interesting question because he brought up the point how our peoplehood is so much about the past. Judaism is all Absolutely. about remembering and and mourning and this and that and the life cycles and traditions. And he compared it to um, black futurism. And he said, you know, uh, he put up these slides of different examples in like sci-fi of like, this is like the future for black people and this is that. And it was all based on this idea of how they're, the future for them is a liberated America where they're free. And so he said, Let's take a moment and imagine as Jews, if we were in a liberated diaspora where we had no e existential angst. <laughs> would we still exist what, as a people? What, what would that look like? Yeah. And he brought up a few really amazing examples. And one of them that really sticks out was this cafe slash like learning, learning lab um, in the U.S. that it's like a very nice, like it looks like a Michelin star, fancy, hip restaurant uh, that you would not think is like a Jewish thing at all. And then he said on the side, there's a little library in the room. And if you look at it, it's all Jewish books. And what they do, it's almost like a bait mead rush, but it's a restaurant. So they have people come and apparently it's packed every single night. They have lectures and they have events and workshops all about Judaism. But it's also just like a hip place that people come to eat with their friends and they're attracting Jews and non-Jews. And that was an example of what is the Jewish future like how do we move forward and make things innovative with what we have I've never really thought of it that way but that does sound super interesting and I think mm -hmm. I'm going to start thinking more about mm -hmm. what does Jewish futures really mean, mean yeah. rather than being worried and scared about oh my god is yeah. this going to is this going to 
you know, tear down our community? Mm-hmm. Are we going to be weakened? I'm going to very yeah. positive outlook of what a Jewish exactly. future can look like. Uh, that's fantastic. I really hope to attend next year. Lishana Haba Be Toronto, maybe Calgary. We'll see what happens. We'll find out. Uh, we're going to head to our interview right now with Ruth Rakoff. Uh, Ruth, if you don't know, published her first book. It was a memoir titled When My World Was Very Small back in 2010. And now we are interviewing her for her latest book, Untethered, which is a fictional story about two Jewish sisters navigating their differences. It goes back and forth between living in Israel as well as Toronto and New York City. Alana and I both were very much looking forward to sitting down and chatting with her. Uh, She is also the sister of the late humorist David Rakoff, and she now lives in Toronto. Just note for context that we did this interview several weeks ago, mid-October, when the war between Israel and Hamas broke out. Let's take a listen. Ruth, can you tell us what your new book, Untethered, is about? It's a story about family. It focuses on the relationship between two sisters, but also their their history and their family. It spans 60 years and four generations, uh, moves back and forth in time and place. In a nutshell, the two sisters' lives have diverged in very significant ways, and they come back together in a crisis and have to find ways to navigate the trauma of their past, uh, the intergenerational trauma that they inherited, and um, their own relationship. And what inspired you to tell this story now? Oh, now's a really difficult question because I worked on it for nine years. So <laughs> so now is hardly relevant. <laughs> but um, I, I'm kind of obsessed with the whole concept of narrative and storytelling and the importance of it and uh, the power of things said and the power of things unsaid. You know, fiction comes from different places and bits and pieces of my own experiences and other people's experiences are woven into the tapestry that makes up the story. I'd love to go deeper into that. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the book, would you like to read us a short passage so that our listeners can get a feel for the novel? Sure. I will read you a short passage, which I happen to know takes me exactly a minute to read. Great. (laughs) So the two sisters' names are Petal and Rose. Petal was not being unkind in her assessment of her sister's capacity to upstage. It really was undeniable. From the moment she was born, Rosie had been the unexpected to Petal's grounded. They were two of a very rare type, a fraternal twin known as post-conception gestational twins, conceived through superfetation. It was probably not as rare as documented because it likely went undiagnosed, if diagnosis was the right term, more often than not. Twins are born. One is significantly bigger than the other. Oh well, these things happen. But in the case of Petal, nay Daisy on April 28, 1968, but renamed Petal at about a month old. Her twin sister, Rose, was not born until almost three weeks after her on May 17, 1968. Thank you so much. So as you mentioned before, the book heavily deals with the theme of intergenerational trauma. And in, in the case of the novel, a lot of it has to do with being the descendant of Holocaust survivors since 
Petal and Rose are, their grandparents are survivors and you see how the mental illness kind of manifests with their mother and into them. If you are open to sharing, what is your relationship to the Holocaust? Are you a descendant of survivors? In a sense, I am. And in other ways, I'm not. My mother's, my mother's mother, so my grandmother, who I never knew, left Eastern Europe um, and moved to South Africa, <clears throat> where my parents are from, leaving behind all of her siblings who were presumed slaughtered in the Holocaust. Okay. Uh, and all of that carried forward. There is so much detail in the book, and the characters are moving from place to place to place as we're reading. We're in South Africa, we're in Israel, we're in Toronto, we're in New York. Um, so that that's why those questions were coming to my mind, because the detail was so specific. Since you never got to know that uh, grandmother of yours, how did you go about doing the research to get the authentic detail you know, even when it comes to the experiences of living in South Africa or Israel, what can you tell us a bit of your process of bringing those details into all the different characters and places? So I, I did actually go to Israel um, to interview people. I was specifically at the time that I went, I thought I was interested in the period between 1947 and 1957. And so I spoke with a, a whole bunch of elderly people who told me their stories. Okay. And I was very unprescriptive in the way I conducted the interviews. I just said, you know, what was it like back then? And um, got incredible story. I mean, I have enough stories for 12 more novels. But when I found, and I didn't know exactly what I was looking for, but when I found people from uh, extremely diverse backgrounds with incredibly diverse experiences um, about when they came and how they arrived and what they're, you know, some who were born in Israel and some who arrived as refugees from Eastern Europe and others who arrived from Iraq and other um, Eastern countries. And sometimes the same thing came up in each of their stories. And when the same thing came up, more than once, hmm. more than twice, I realized that it had to be included somehow. Can you give us an example? Um, so in the in the novel, there's a, a scene that talks about, you know, the things that people did in the days of, of long gone Israel when there was nothing, when they, nobody had anything and there was nothing there. But everybody talked about the ice cream shop. There was one ice cream shop in Israel and everybody talked about it. And everybody had different details about it, including that the owner's uh, owner had red hair and he sat behind his cash register all the time. And the ice for the ice cream fridge was delivered by a horse-drawn cart and all of those things. And it came up so many times with different people that I thought, that has to be there. You describe this book as a novel of grief on the passing of your brother David, who himself was an author. How has that personal experience influenced the writing and possibly the tone of this book? Um, as I say in the novel, grief is a fierce overlord. Hmm. Uh, and um, I will never get over the loss of my brother. But I started writing this, <clears throat> sorry, 
Um, I started writing this particular novel about three years after he died, and uh, it was still extremely raw. And we were very close. We can definitely feel a lot of that in the book, just with the relationship between the two sisters. There's a lot of emotional weight and authenticity to it. I want to talk a bit more about them. For those who haven't read the book yet, which I highly encourage you to, I really enjoyed it. I couldn't put it down. <laughs> I was reading it all the time. Um, so the two sisters who grew up fairly secular because of their background, they go on to uh, a trip to Israel that their grandparents pay for. And one of the sisters, Rosie, ends up wanting to become quite religious, uh, while the other sister does not follow her on that path. And so I really appreciated that you provided two very different perspectives, because as the book goes on, the two sisters begin to understand each other a little bit more. Um, what's your own Jewish background and how did that inform writing those two characters from two very different streams of the Jewish world? Uh, I have a very secular background. Um, I lived in Israel and in Israel, the, the worlds do not collide in any way. There's the secular world and there's the Orthodox world. And so I had very, you know, strong feelings and strong opinions and judgment. Uh, so would you was, say that that you kind of infuse some of your own thought processes through Petal's character? Was that kind of the your in? Absolutely, but that wasn't my in. My in was that I spent three years working in the ultra ultra orthodox community. Ah, okay. In literacy education, and I came in with my own preconceptions and judgments, and they had preconceptions and judgments about me. Uh, in fact, when I went to the interview for the job, I was interviewed by an ultra-Orthodox rabbi, and uh, he said, okay, great, you've got the job. And I said, okay, so how's this going to work? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm going to be working as a secular woman in boys' schools, dealing with rabbis who, under other circumstances, would have nothing to do with me. And he said, yeah, and on top of that, you think you're Jewish. Oh, my gosh. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. He was half joking. Right. And so only, only half, half joking. joking. Yeah. You know, they used to ask me questions like, Mrs. Rakoff, do you know what Pesach is? Yeah. No, it, it, there is definitely a divide. I lived in the Myland in Montreal, and it's a very Hasidic neighborhood. And I remember once my dad came to visit me and he he we used to study at yeshiva. Um, but he was wearing a leather jacket. He didn't have a keep on his head. And he started getting into a conversation with, with a Hasidic kid about Torah. And the kid was like, how do you know all this? Because I'm Jewish. So you had these preconceived notions going working with the ultra-Orthodox community. Did any of that change? Was anything, did, did your views change? Or did the students' and teachers' views change about how, how you identify with Judaism? I don't know if their opinion of how I identify with Judaism changed at all. But certainly their opinion of me being able to contribute something in their community changed. Um, you know, in fact, when I when I left the job, one of the rabbis, uh, the principals of one of the schools said to me, Mrs. Rakoff, you're not as bad as I thought you were, which was high praise. Um, but my perception changed by meeting individuals who, who impressed me, who who were incredible people, wonderful educators, really hardworking, 
Nobody works as hard as Orthodox women. Nobody. Um, and and so this whole notion of seeing the trees instead of the forest was, I really feel like I, I was given an insight that, that <laughs> otherwise I would never have had. So it makes it was, a lot of sense yeah. hearing about that experience because reading the book, there was a lot of authenticity in appearing into that world and the experiences that Petal has when she's brought back to Toronto and she's suddenly, you know, in her sister's ultra-Orthodox world and the way that, that the people spoke, the different, you know, the, there was definitely some extremities too of um, one that really stood out to me was the cushering of the books, the children's books, where she sees that her sister's drawn skirts and kippahs, um on all the kids in the drawings. So how did you strike that balance between creating that authentic experience for Jewish readers while also making it accessible and maybe somewhat universal for non-Jewish readers who might pick up your book? I don't think there's any issue with it being accessible for Jewish readers. I really think that it that it you know it doesn't matter what uh, Jewish lens you have. I think that um, it, it rings true in many ways. One hundred percent. And and I think that as a universal um, narrative, it's about relationships and family and the complexity of that and trauma and the complexity of that. And the specifics make it real, but the specifics also make it universal. I'd like to take us back to your first book, uh, When My World Was Very Small, a memoir of family, food, cancer, and my couch. Now, this was a very personal account of your own cancer diagnosis in 2010. Um, and I, I felt when I was looking into this, I, I feel I could relate to this looming health issue and the uncertainty that it brings. I myself have had issues. I've had a liver transplant when I was 12 years old. And there's always this question of when will it get worse? When will I need a new liver transplant? And will I survive that coming that coming issue? So I want to know how you maintained your sense of self and identity through your own cancer journey. Um, I wrote it. I'm somebody who's always needed to, you know, um, have a creative outlet. And I've dabbled in all sorts of things, painting and drawing and sculpture. And and I loved sculpting. Sculpting was my, uh, you know, I'm home moment when I discovered it. And chemo left me unable to sculpt for a variety of reasons. Um, but I needed to make something. I'm a lousy painter. <laughs> Um, because you didn't grow up, I think, being planning to be a writer, right? That was something no. that came later on. Yeah, because I, I don't think that the medium really matters. I think it's the need to create. And, you know, I come from a family that, that uh, our sport of choice was words and banter. And I always lost, but um, <laughs> my brothers are much, much smarter than I am. And, uh, but... So the capacity to switch mediums was was um, available to me, and I wrote it. When you said that, I think of my Shabbat family night dinners at home, where it was nothing but banter, discussions of politics, religion, um, and, and that's sort of what maybe got me out of my shell, is to listen to all these arguments back and forth, and to do the research, and then come back with some important facts, and to, to, to really fight for what you believe in. Yeah. I know resilience is a major theme in your book, 
What does resilience mean to you? Um, that's a good question. What does it mean to me? Uh, life's really hard, you know. As as a parent, you spend a lot of time trying to protect your children, and particularly my generation of parents, where parenting became a verb and it was something you actively did, and to create a world in which your kids would be safe and protected and successful and have self-esteem. And I think we maybe did it wrong because I think that what we should be teaching our kids is resilience and grit because life's hard and it doesn't matter how you slice it, stuff happens. And I mean, you know, this week of all weeks, I I can't emphasize that enough. So I just want to state that we are recording right now during about the first week between Israel and the Israel and Hamas war right now. Right. What would you like people to walk away with from reading Untethered? You do touch on, as we said, so many different, really important themes, resilience, intergenerational trauma, you know, family connection. What do you hope ultimately uh, that it gives people as readers? So on a very surface level, I really hope that it's a good read, you know, that people engage with it and they, and they, uh, you know, there's nothing better than a book that you kind of sucked into and don't want to put down. And, and I, you know, to me, that's the highest praise as a writer is when somebody says I couldn't put it down. But more to the point, you know, David just mentioned that we're recording this, um, the first week of, of a horrifying, brutal attack on Israel and the uh, ensuing war. And I can't help but feel that if perhaps there was one generation of Israelis who were not themselves traumatized by war, that no longer exists. And the only thing I know that helps with trauma is talking about it and telling the stories and bearing witness and allowing space for that to be okay. Because if it becomes something we can't talk about, it grows and it festers and it causes damage and harm. And I think that that remains relevant right now, specifically and universally. Yeah, that's a great takeaway. I think one thing that stood out in my mind in the book was when the survivors, the Holocaust survivors, were coming to the state of Israel. They sort of said, bury it, bury it deep down. Nobody here in the new state wants to hear about the pain just move on. And I think what you're sort of suggesting is, is the exact same thing, that that there was all this... I grew up in, a, in an era where we had Holocaust survivors come to our school all the time to talk, to express everything going on. It was very normal for me in elementary school to hear these stories, even if it was quite triggering. But c contrast that with 1950s State of Israel, where it says, bury it deep down and nobody wants to hear about this, and possibly some of the damage that that caused these people. I think it was a combination of nobody wanting to hear about it and people simply not having the vocabulary to talk about it. We didn't have words like trauma. We didn't have words like, um, we didn't talk about mental health, let alone mental illness. And in the book, I, I reference that with things that we didn't have vocabulary for. And I think that, I mean, we know that people started telling their stories en masse about the Holocaust uh, during the Demyanuk trials. And, and people said, we need to tell our stories because never again. I think that 
element of the book is really what resonated with me as a Jewish reader, because we all have people in our family that never told us their stories or didn't reveal a, a mental illness because they didn't know how to name it. And I think if anything, in 2023, that's a huge part of the Jewish experience is unraveling the history that might not have been shared with you and dealing with the weight of how it still affects your family and the people you know around you. Because I don't think there's a single one of us that's not affected by intergenerational trauma in some way or another. I would agree. Thank you so much, Ruth. I suggest all of you go out and get a copy of her book, Untethered. Thank you. Alana, what's coming up in our uh, in our world next month? I know Hanukkah is right around the corner. It is. It, it seems like Hanukkah has taken over all of the arts and cultural events. I couldn't find anything that was not Hanukkah related that we haven't already plugged. So the first one that I will give mention to is Lyrics and Latkes, a Hanukkah celebration, which um, I believe was written and directed by uh, Adina Katz. No, 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 no. Uh, so it's a Yiddish Dora Wasserman Yiddish theater production. So it's community community theater. It's a holiday sing along. It's going to be happening at the Siegel Center December 10th. Great. Uh, keeping in much line with the Hanukkah extravaganza, J Tunes light up the night with ABBA revisited a Hanukkah special. This is taking place on December 9th, 8 p.m. at the Prosserman Jewish Community Center in Toronto. I don't know why ABBA and, and Hanukkah go hand in hand, but apparently they do. They're going to light the candles. They're going to strike a pose with some dancing queens, and they're going to croon to honey, honey. <laughs> why not? Yeah. One other Toronto event on my radar on December 12th is Candles and Comedy, which benefits Magenda Vida Dom. It's a whole slew of Jewish comedians happening in Toronto. So be sure to check that out. And now heading back to the West in Calgary, B'nai Tikva Synagogue is having a switch on and Hanukkah celebration Saturday, December 9th at 1030 in the morning in conjunction with their services. I don't know if you know this, Alana, but I believe B'nai Tikva is the only or one of the only temples in Canada, North America, that has now gone green. They teamed oh, wow. up with Bow Valley Green Energy Corporate uh, Cooperative. They're going to inaugurate the temple's new solar panel array. They're going to power it and they're going to power their menorah. At the same time, so I hope it goes off wow. without a hitch. That's really cool. It's been several years in the making right now, and it's finally coming to fruition. I will be there. David, do you have any fun Hanukkah plans back in Calgary other than this event? Uh, I will be doing a Christmaka event, obviously, because John and his side of the family obviously celebrates Christmas. So we're going to do a, 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 a mixing and melding of it. I will be lighting the menorah. I will be attending synagogue. And then I really am genuinely looking forward to celebrating Christmas with his side of the family. Uh, I'm looking forward to being back to back there. So I just mm -hmm. want to have a nice, relaxing holiday season. Yeah. Are you doing anything? Yeah. Um, I'm going to be with my, and I don't know how to say this. I'm going to be with my sister-in-law. It's a very easy thing to say. I was going to say with my in-laws. I'm like, no, that's <laughs> that's the parents. Um, yeah, my sister-in-law lives down in Florida, so we're going to be with her for most of Hanukkah, which I'm very excited about having some warm weather and playing with my adorable three-year-old niece. Oh. Uh, so that will be good. And then uh, we'll be back in Montreal for the last bit of Hanukkah and hopefully do some some candle lighting and fun times. Spinning the dreidel, eating latkes, all yeah. the good stuff, sufganiyot. Well, that is it. It's been nice spending time with you in Montreal, Alana, and you I too. hope to see you. I will probably see you sooner rather than later at some point in the new year. All the best and take care. Happy Hanukkah, everyone.
Culturally Jewish is hosted by me, David Sklar, and Ilana Zakon. We're produced and edited by Michael Freeman, and our theme music is by Sarah Siegel Lazar. We're a member of the CJN Podcast Network. To support our work and everything the CJN does, visit the cjn.ca slash donate to make a monthly donation and receive a charitable tax receipt. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.